Uh, during the night, it was like a weird night. You could feel it, but it wasn't anything like I saw or like anything specific, if that makes sense. And then she woke up in the morning and she still wanted to go home. And mm-hmm. like, and she called our mission president. And anyways, he talked to her and then I talked to her and then everyone, like our elders came and talked to her and stuff. So she stayed and we stayed. October 16th, 2017, exactly two months after I entered the MTC, I left it for good. I was on my way to Houston now, and just glad to be done with the training portion of the mission. Or so I thought. Upon arriving in Houston, I was assigned a trainer, a more experienced missionary, to be my first companion and show me the ropes, essentially. Every day for up to an hour, missionaries do something called companionship study, which is where you read scriptures, practice teaching, watch training videos, etc. together as a companionship. For new missionaries, this hour is especially important because you're not familiar with the people, places, schedule, or activities of your mission yet. About a week in, my trainer and I were doing companionship study one day. We just call it comp study. And we did some teaching and language practice, planned for the lessons we had that evening, and sent some texts. Towards the end, my trainer went over a few things he thought I should know. He told me about some of the past missionaries who used to live in the apartment we were now living in. In particular, he mentioned an incident that had taken place in this apartment just six months before, but wouldn't go into any of the details, because he hadn't actually been present at the time. He said that maybe another missionary, one who had been there, would tell me later on. This comp study had taken an abrupt turn. I had only been out of the MTC a week, and already I was hearing the same things I'd heard before and during my stay there. The only difference was, I was in the field now. This was where all the action happened, where all the stories came from, and I wondered what would happen next. Welcome back, you brave souls, to the Adversary Podcast. It has been a conflicting week, to say the least. I've changed the topic of this episode more than once, trying to figure out exactly what the next step was coming off of last week's episode, which was more intense than the first two. I know how this first run of episodes will end, some five or six down the line, but what happens in between is still a little up in the air. But that's just the nature of this series. As we go where not many have dared venture. So where will we end up today? The answer, I finally decided, is Japan. My first introduction to the possibility that these kinds of stories can take place in Japan came when I contacted one of my friends who'd served as a missionary there. My text I sent her was, Did you ever run into anything supernatural in Japan? Her response, Yeah, we did for a bit. My apartment was pretty sketchy. Lots of crazy stuff happened. When I asked if she'd be down to share what happened, she declined to do so, saying that the experience makes her emotional every time she talks about it. So after that exchange, I was left with this impression that Japan has some spooky stuff going on behind the scenes that I wasn't privy to, and I really wanted to hear about it now. Well, a few weeks later, I had the great fortune of meeting a former missionary who also served in Japan, and was willing to spill the soybeans on all the Japanese ghost gossip I'd been excluded from. I called her up, and for 45 minutes, she filled me in on everything she experienced and everything she heard about other missionaries' experiences while living for almost a year and a half in Kobe, Japan. First, her own personal account of an encounter she had with something. A lot of the time, that's the only way I can describe what's pulling the invisible strings in these stories. Just something. Usually, the testimonies of those at the scene when these kinds of things happen seem to indicate the involvement of a spirit or spirits, but when it's just a feeling, like the missionaries in episode 1 experienced, it's harder to draw a firmer conclusion about what was causing that feeling. 
but the fact that in most of these instances, both companions get that same uncomfortable vibe is telling. And now this girl was telling me her story, which began with a little bit of companionship drama. It's no secret that companionships struggle sometimes. It is a strict rule that you can never be outside your companion's line of sight or range of hearing, except when in an interview with the mission president, in the restroom, or on companion exchanges, which is where you switch buddies for like a day. This enforced togetherness is great for things like safety and having someone to talk to, for example, but not so great after an argument or other disagreements. One such disagreement had reared its head in this companionship lately, concerning tablet devices and missionary protocol regulating their usage. Missionaries are generally not permitted to access the internet or indulge in social media, and the sister's companion's behavior had her worried that these rules were not being adhered to. Mostly, she was just afraid of the consequences of being disobedient. She didn't know how that would affect their success as missionaries or protection as servants of the Lord. But whatever. It was a minor issue, and her companion would probably have a moment of realization and start following the rules again. The more arguments avoided, the better. Well, every transfer, the mission president hosts something called a zone conference, where missionaries travel in from different areas in the mission and meet as a group to receive instruction. This zone conference was special because it featured a high-ranking church leader named Elder Wada, who had come to the Japan Kobe mission to speak and greet the elders and sisters. This girl, who was telling me this story, said she thought the conference was really cool. She cried the whole time Elder Wada spoke because she was, quote, feeling the spirit, the Holy Spirit, that is, and it just left a good impression on her. After the conference, the missionaries had the opportunity to shake hands with Elder Wada and engage in conversation with him a little bit. For this sister, Elder Wada actually approached her, and, having probably noticed her crying during his talk, remarked that she feels the spirit strongly. This girl told me that at the time, she didn't realize that Elder Wada's comment had a double meaning. She had felt the Holy Spirit, to be sure, but later would understand that that sensitivity extended beyond just the good feelings. With the zone conference concluded, the two sisters began the three-hour trek back to their area, consisting of a bus ride and a final stretch of biking. The sisters got on the bus and everything was normal. About 30 to 45 minutes in, the sister, who had been approached by Elder Wada at the conference, felt something. Something was up. Off. Weird. She looked around, but there was nothing her other senses could discern that validated what she was feeling. Still though, something wasn't right. Otherwise, she wouldn't be bothered. The bus pulled up to their stop and the sisters disembarked. They retrieved their bikes, they locked up and started on their way back to their apartment. Instead of feeling better after getting off the bus, the sister was feeling worse. Her hope that this air of foreboding was just her own thoughts was diminishing. Finally, the sisters arrived at the front porch of their apartment. Now, this sister told me that in her mission, it was kind of a rule for missionaries to say a prayer on the porch before entering their living quarters. This was done for exactly the reason you'd think. To ensure that nothing comes through the doorway that shouldn't. Oftentimes, this rule was ignored in favor of needing to use the bathroom really badly, wanting to get out of the heat or cold, laziness, etc. This sister's companion, for example, wanted to get in and shower after having been on exchanges the previous day. But the sister who'd been racked with feelings of anxiety for the past three hours insisted that they obey the rule and pray first before going into their apartment. The companion, surprised at the sister's resoluteness, agreed to delay a shower for a minute longer and the sister said a quick prayer. Immediately after stepping into the apartment, the same sister knew that something had followed them inside. She walked upstairs and actually felt slightly better. But suddenly, a thought surfaced in her head. She shouldn't let her companion take a shower. She couldn't let her companion and her be separated. She ran to her comp and told her what she'd been feeling and not to go take a shower. 
According to this sister, her companion had certain spiritual gifts that she was aware of. One of these gifts was to see and know what spirits are doing. The sister confronted her comp and demanded to know what she knew about this whole situation and what she, the sister, was feeling. It took a while, but the companion eventually made an admission. Something may or may not have followed us into our home. With the sister's suspicions confirmed, she called the district leader to arrange for their apartment to be blessed. But at that point, it was already late in the evening, relatively speaking. Missionaries are supposed to be back in their apartments by 9.30pm at the latest, and it was past 9.30. The district leader, being the rigidly obedient missionary that he was, told the sisters that they were out of luck. They'd have to wait until morning because he and his companion would be breaking curfew if they left their place now. So the sisters, now effectively abandoned, prepared for a night in a room they knew they weren't alone in. They left some dim lights going to act as a nightlight. The sister clipped her name tag onto her pajamas and clutched her scriptures in one hand as she tried to fall asleep, for the most part unsuccessfully. But the night passed, uneventfully, thank goodness. By the time the sun was up, nothing bad had happened. Relief was now the predominant feeling, and a few hours later, the district leader showed up and blessed the apartment. When I asked this girl why she thought something had followed them that day, she attributed it to her companion's struggle to obey the mission rules when using her tablet. In my opinion, that seemed kind of silly, but then again I couldn't really think of a better reason other than just random chance. Despite all my deep dives I've done on the subject, I've never been able to define a list of set criteria that, if met, will increase your predisposition to haunting by evil spirits. Of course, you can attempt to attract them on purpose, which can either end with the intended result or no result, but the average missionary isn't doing that. They instead take preventative measures and hope for the best. Whether or not disobedience can be an invitation to spirits is still not clear, as many obedient missionaries are likewise afflicted. What was clear to the sister later, though, was the reason she felt she couldn't let her companion be alone. Somehow, she knew that whatever was in their apartment was attracted to her comp, and it didn't like her, the sister. It wouldn't get within a certain radius of the companion if she was around. Again, I don't know how she knew this, or if that part was even true, but it made some sense in terms of why nothing crazy happened that evening or during the night. The rest of the transfer the two sisters were together, nothing like this ever occurred a second time. As the story's audience, I was just the tiniest bit disappointed that it ended on such an anticlimactic note. I know how horrible that sounds, these are real people who went through real terror, but so far, Japan wasn't living up to the hype I had built up around it in my mind. It was just a repeat of the Houston and New Zealand cases, but with sisters. The girl on the phone, being the perceptive person that she was, probably noticed that I wasn't too satisfied with that particular Japanese ghost story when I said, you got anything else? She then proceeded to blow my mind. A warning about these next stories. I personally didn't speak to the people involved in the following accounts. The same girl I was on the phone with had these told to her by her trainer and some elders in her mission. So instead of being second-hand accounts like I usually share, these are more like third-hand accounts. And I don't often do this because as you become further removed from the source, details can get fuzzy and errors and exaggerations can creep in. But this girl seemed pretty reliable, and these other stories were short enough to be okay even if they weren't completely fleshed out. After the girl was done recounting her own experience with the thing that followed them, I asked if that was all and she said that that was her only one, but her trainer went through something scary before they were companions. Apparently, what had happened had been so frightening for her trainer that her trainer refused to talk about it for a long time. Finally, one day, with encouragement from her trainee, she felt sufficiently comfortable to tell this girl just enough about the incident to help her understand why she didn't like recalling it. Here's the gist of what her trainer revealed. 
At the time of the story's events, the girl's trainer was still a young missionary, having recently arrived in Japan. She was paired up with her own trainer, and they were living in an apartment somewhere near Kobe. The two missionaries were asleep one night, when loud crashing noises coming from the kitchen snapped them awake. Making their way from the bedroom to the kitchen, they discovered what was causing all of the commotion. Cupboards were opening by themselves, and dishes were flying out and shattering on the ground. The sisters retreated back to the bedroom and called the mission president, who miraculously answered the phone in the dead of night. They screamed something along the lines of, President, President, dishes are flying out of the cupboards in our kitchen and we don't know what to do, please help. The mission president responded like this. Oh, it's fine. This has happened before. You can call the elders tomorrow. Go back to bed. In disbelief, the sisters went back to bed, and the commotion in the kitchen eventually ceased. The next morning, the sisters wasted no time getting a hold of the closest elders and explaining the situation to them. The elders agreed to come by and rededicate the sisters' apartment, which just means to bless it. Inside the apartment, one of the elders said a prayer intended to cast out whatever was making trouble in the residence. At the conclusion of the prayer, both the elders and the sisters went outside and prepared to go their separate ways, the elders back to their place and the sisters off to an appointment. As they were leaving, the sisters saw this guy standing in the street in front of their apartment. He was saying something in Japanese and pointing to the building. The trainee didn't know the language too well yet, and she couldn't understand what he was saying, but her trainer could. Horror set in as she told her trainee, he's giving spirits permission to enter our apartment. He's re-haunting it. Immediately, the mission president was dialed again, and this time he was serious. You go in there and you pack up your bags. You're leaving now. The girl finished the story there, and wow. This one had none of the subtlety that the last one did. It clearly couldn't be written off as just feelings or a draft. I initially supposed that it could have been an earthquake, seeing as they were in Japan, but I guess everything would have been shifting around if that were the case. In addition, the mission president seemed to have gotten a call about this kind of thing before, and there was a man outside their house apparently sending spirits in. All these factors combined point to the conclusion that this was an encounter involving one or more spirits. This was also the first time I'd heard about them perpetrating property damage, if you don't count the wooden step in episode 1. What really stood out to me in the story, though, was the contrast between the initial and final reactions of the mission president to the developing situation. It's time I explained a little more about mission presidents. They're men, usually over 40, that just like the younger missionaries are given an assignment by the church, but to preside over one of the almost 400 missions across the globe. Within the church, the position of mission president is viewed as one of the most difficult because of what it entails. If the offer to serve is accepted, a man called as a mission president is expected to leave everything behind for three years, including his home, friends, and career, taking only his family with him to wherever he is assigned, which is more often than not a foreign country. He serves without pay, dedicating every day to assisting the missionaries, making sure their needs and the needs of the work are met. It takes a truly selfless person to be a mission president. He'll often labor side by side with his wife as they cover more ground in accomplishing the tasks associated with the job. And he's also aided by two missionaries he specifically appoints as assistants. Even with all the help though, when a panicked call from a set of elders or sisters comes in, he's the last line of defense. It's his counsel that missionaries trust in circumstances like the trainer and trainee found themselves in. When missionaries need help getting out of the most extreme situations, they call the mission president. And when he gives an order, the best course of action is to follow. Two elders in particular can attest to this fact. The girl I was on the phone with wasn't done. 
A pair of elders that had served at a nearby area told her, after some meeting or activity, of an experience they had a few nights before. The elders were in their apartment, and one of them was focused on reading or writing something at his desk in the study room. His back was to his companion. His companion made some comment or asked him a question, and he responded without turning around. They continued to talk for a bit, until the elder's companion asked, Who are you talking to? The elder at the desk did a 180 and saw his companion just now walking into the room. I thought it was you. To which his comp said, Let's call president. Once they got a hold of him, the elders told the mission president how something that had sounded exactly like the companion had been talking to the other missionary. The president, not messing around, advised the elders to put on their suits, the business kind, and rededicate their apartment, which they promptly did. I said something like, dang, that one's pretty freaky, to the girl on the phone. There was, presumably, a spirit in the elders' apartment that had spoken, a phenomenon I hadn't encountered in my search until now. It was one thing for spirits to give off negative energy or even touch, but a whole nother thing to speak. Interestingly, whatever it was that was in that apartment, it was able to mimic the voice of the companion and trick the elder into believing it was really him. The purpose that served is unclear. Oftentimes, after I hear one of these stories, I try to figure out why a spirit did what it did. What's its motivation? It seems like in the majority of cases, spirits just want to scare us. I don't know all the reasons behind their behavior, but fear appears to be their greatest tool. They bend the established laws of the normal world to unnerve us, and apparently can be summoned or even utilized by certain people that invite them into their lives. That man on the street, for example, may have been one such person. But he's not the only one, as we'll see in the next account. The final story told to me by the girl was another one she'd heard from elders, a different set. Again. This is a third-hand account, and certain elements may have deviated from the original. But the girl assured me that it was true, and keeping in mind everything I've said, it will be treated as just that. Two elders had been teaching a man for a little while. They had met with him several times, and he seemed interested in the church. But now, they were trying to cease contact with him, because of his phone calls. He lived across town, far away from the elder's apartment. But when he called, he would tell the elders exactly what they were doing in the moment, like he could see through the walls. He would do this whenever they were in their residence or out on the street. Whenever they got a call from him, he was able to describe their actions, appearance, and where they were. The elders blocked his number, but somehow the calls kept coming through. It was like they were being stalked, but he was never physically present, and there was no way he could have known everything he did, not without help. Eventually, the elders decided that this needed to stop. They called the mission president from their apartment and explained the issue. The mission president's answer made my jaw drop. He told the elders to take some of their garments, the famed Mormon underwear, and hang them on the apartment walls. Following the direction of their president, the elders did so. And then they got a text. It was the man. The text read, Where are you? I can't see you. If you have a story you'd like to share, send an email to theadversarypodcast at gmail.com or send us a message on Instagram at theadversarypodcast. The Adversary Podcast is hosted by me, Ethan Lars. Everything except for the accounts were written by me, including the main theme. A special thanks to my friends, old and new, that contributed the stories to this episode. Thank you for listening, and we hope we didn't scare you away.